Welcome to Vino Week, episode 40. I'm Bill. Hey everybody, it's Al. Welcome to Vino 101. Welcome. Let's, Welcome. Uh, let's talk some wine. Talk some, uh, yes, talk about news from the world of wine and some wine itself. There's a lot going on, even though it's after the holidays. Uh, hey, uh, just so everybody knows, it's finally back to normal here in California. It's, it's it's been raining. Yeah, we had a week of week of rain, which, um, is, which is normal. Yeah, and, yeah, and, back to back to the eighties, kind of. Let's just hope it continues. Yeah. They say it's supposed to start up again, and we got another four or five days coming our way. So uh, it can't rain enough here. Yeah, it yeah. was nice to drive uh, past the Laguna and see all the water. You know, in the Laguna, going towards Santa Rosa, that was pretty nice. Yep, welcome sight. A very welcome sight. Uh, just the rain. I mean, it's kind of, it's funny. I, people that don't live in, it's nice to have the variety. Let me just say it that way. Where it's not, you know, sunny every day. Yeah. Um, it kind of, it, it, I don't know, it activates things. You know, I want to start studying and working on projects that I've, around the house that I've, you know, neglected because I could go outside and do stuff. It's good. Plus, it's nice to just breathe clean air. Yeah. That's a plus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're we're lucky in the United States. I mean, I've I've been to Mexico recently. I've been uh, other places overseas. And really, with the exception of Europe, most of the world lives in pollution. Like we used to live back in the 70s. You know, people don't remember L.A. Hayes. You know, it was as bad as like Shanghai and, and, you know, Mexico City back like you know, back in the back in the day, not that far. You know, a couple yeah, it's of not decades that far. Ago. Well, it's that way uh, when you go to uh, uh, when you go to Europe. I mean, when we were in Italy, it's really hazy there. Really, like, especially if you're like central Italy, like the areas around Rome, it's mm. it's hazy. Wow. And I think I believe this year they um, they've outlawed the manufacture of diesel cars. You know, diesel cars were all the rage for years and years in Europe um, because it's the most economical way to get around. Um, there, uh, obviously, there's less repairs with the diesel motor. Um, the fuel's cheaper, but uh, they're they're no longer selling diesel cars in um, in Europe. I believe uh, starting this year. Well, I had no idea. That's not my uh, thinking or expectation that they would have tighter environmental controls that would help reduce that pollution it it strikes home for me because i just took our uh, we have a diesel car and i took it in uh, to get the strange as as it is you have to get your diesel car smogged (laughs) so i went in and uh, (laughs) i'm going through a thing right now where they're like well no it didn't pass for whatever reason so now i gotta take it to the shop and they gotta figure out what's going on but it's because all these kids have these, you know, there's this backlash of people that drive the Priuses and the Tesla. A lot of these, you know, you get the you get the kids that have these trucks with the diesels and they put these chips in them. Yeah. And uh, my son was telling me this, like, what do they call it? They call it dusting. So when you, when you <laughs> like take off and make the cloud? Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've so seen that around town. Yeah. So um, this is in... This this uh, testing the diesels now is a way of, you know, because these kids they get they just put chips in, you know, they put a, a new chip in or yeah. whatever, and and uh, you know you can get more power and you can do the dusting thing or whatever, Damn. which uh, you know the, you know the the California um, Air Resources Board if it's still around they they don't think that's such a good idea, of course neither do I, but uh, yeah. it does make it more complicated. Yeah, it's kind of funny to me. Have, have you ever been dusted, man? I have um, <laughs> not directly been dusted, but I have been behind a Prius that's been dusted. <laughs> it happens frequently in Sebastopol. <laughs> Pretty funny. It is. And I remember, I remember sitting there going, "Like, what? This guy needs to fix his exhaust. What the heck?" And then I'm like, "Oh, that's got to be intentional." Vigilante. <laughs> yeah. Pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. So, um, 
we got a, a number of uh, topics here. Uh, the, the one that I found uh, really inter interesting and, you know, very, very, what's going on right now is the one that was put out by Rob with um, Silicon Valley uh, Bank talking about uh, cannabis and the millennial wine consumption. Yeah. Did you get a chance to, to look at uh, that? I did. I did. It's uh. a pretty cool map. The map that he has that changes, it shows from like 1939 and then on up about um, how the progression of cannabis legalization has, has started. Yep. And, um, you know, it goes from red to green. And, you know, at the end, you know, 2018, I guess, or whatever, you know, it's a, we really come a long way, man. I mean, there's there's a few red states, but uh, every just about everyone's on board. Um, he's trying to draw, or he's trying to look at, and he's doing a um, actual a symposium here in a few weeks, and he's trying to see if there's a correlation between uh, reduced um, fine wine consumption with the advent of cannabis being legalized. And once I read the whole article, I think basically it's a wash because there's two different it just is like two different types of people or actually there's three or four different types of people but i mean i i'm just not sure there's a solid case that there's a connection between the two yeah i agree i don't um one of the things in the in his uh in his post here in his article that i thought was really interesting and worth more exploration was the fact that cannabis is has potentially more complementary effects with wine consumption than it does negative effects. And, and probably if you average all that stuff out, I think it's, it's true what you're saying. It's going to be, it's going to be a wash, but there will be people who will come for instance, to this place, to Northern California, who want to have an experience with cannabis like they have with wine, where they can go to a farm. They might be able to have some types of tasting or at least see different strains of cannabis and then get in an uber and go to a winery um yeah that that or to a brewery i don't think that's gonna um i think we're gonna see more of that and has the potential to increase the whole pie as opposed to reducing it all i, I don't think and the other thing is i don't think people consciously go into a store and go oh, i was gonna get some wine but i decided to get cannabis instead I don't think people think like that. It's like I'm gonna go get high, or I'm gonna, and, and now that I'm high, I'm thirsty, so I'm gonna start <laughs> drinking wine. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I mean that's really. So it's too, maybe net net's too early to tell um, how all this is gonna shake out because it's not, you know, it's not legal nationally like, um, um, <clears throat> like wine is. You know, I can't package up cannabis today and send it to Chicago from here. I can with wine, yeah. but I can't do that with cannabis. So, you know, and in general, yeah, in general, the, the last thing I say, sorry to talk over you. The last thing I'll say about this, we don't know the millennials and understanding how they consume wine. We just don't understand it yet. And part of this, I think, has to do with, you know, more and more of the retail of wine being done by, you know, bigger businesses, supermarkets and the big, you know, the top what is it top five or six distributors that control the wine market i also think there's generations of winemakers that don't understand how to use the internet to reach their consumers and if you've got the right marketing people you can reach those people and you see wineries around our area that have figured that out and they're busy just walk oh, yeah. down to the barlow and look who's busy pax winery's busy there's an, there's other wineries that aren't busy. Every time I go by that Pax tasting room, there's people in there. I go by others, there isn't, and I know why because there's a millennial running the marketing for Pax. She yeah, knows, she's doing a good job. Yep, she knows yeah. how to reach those people, um, and and she's doing it in a way that's cost effective for the business. So I, I that's my supposition. I don't have much more proof than a bunch of anecdotal information, but I think that's a big. Um, you can also extend this to uh, the barrel tasting. You know, there are wineries that, you know, have figured out how to get buses full of millennials to their winery for barrel tasting, and it's now a thing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, that and also with the Uber now, you can, you know, you can just hire out an Uber driver to drive you around. So it's, yeah. uh, there's so many better ways to get around. Yeah. I, I think it'll be really interesting to see um, once we recover from the fires, 
and people get um, we have another article talking about business outlook and one of the things that most of the you know the hospitality industry in Santa Rosa says um, is that we were really hurt by the fire and there is a perception all the way from the lodging to the actual businesses that make you know wine and beer that people think it burned Santa Rosa burned down so it like don't go there right now everything's burned yeah. up and so they're marketing over like they have to market their way out of this and i mean marketing by getting the word out that it's fine to come here everything's open you know it's not been completely devastated but it's funny people are like hey do we go here or there it's like oh they had a fire things aren't probably working really well there so i'll go somewhere else so once that's over it'll be really interesting to see what what happens i think yeah, well, there is there is definitely a shortage as far as uh, accommodations. I mean, that's part of it. You know, what you're seeing is when people look for places to stay, especially if they want to stay in, in you know, uh, a Hilton or you know, some a hotel brand name hotel. It's it's more difficult to find places, and it's more expensive now yeah. to come to Santa Rosa just because the actual pod of, of places is lesser. So, I mean, I, I think they got to build up their inventory of rooms. You know? Yeah, and there's multiple hotels planned, if you know that parking lot that's across from Jack and Tony's. Um, yeah, yeah. That's going to be a Hilton. Um, one of the Hilton brands or one of the Hyatt brands. The Hyatt that's right down there just expanded and remodeled. Um, there's two or three hotels going into Fountain Grove where they that one burned down, or at least they're trying to get approved. So, you know. Uh, all of this kind of to the point of once we get we quote unquote recover, <clears throat> you know, it could be bigger than it was before. I, I was surprised to find out that um, I think this was in the press, our local paper last week, that there's only been six homes that have been completely rebuilt in all of Fountain Grove. That's that, a staggering that, statistic. That's mind boggling. Yeah, when you think of all the homes that were up there, yeah. when you drive up there, I mean, it's, I guess it's true. I mean, you don't, you see some stuff under construction, you yeah. know, there's a lot more construction going on now, but I mean, we're over a year now and nothing, nothing is there, which is pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. I, 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 um, I have one you know, personal anecdote on this. I had a friend whose house burned down in the Oakland Hills fire. If you remember that back in the, you know, early nineties, was it yeah. late nineties? Um, and it took two years for them to get to the point where they could move into a structure. It might have even been longer. Like they lived in a hotel for a year. It was pretty grim. Yeah. Sounds um, terrible. Yeah. But like they couldn't start construction for a year kind of thing to get the insurance worked out. And I, I hear, anecdotally here you read in the paper periodically that there's you know the insurance battle continues i would imagine in those homes where there's you know the multi-million dollar home there's just more on, at stake for the insurance company so it's going to take longer yeah. um work you know bigger house more complicated design um it's in the hills so now they're looking at it in more detailed way for permitting Fountain Grove had that whole water problem. Remember the whole water yeah. system? You know, that, that it's like you're not building until we resolve that. That was three months. So, a lot of holdups, yeah. Yep. And that's all cost, right? That's also cost. So, you know, if your financial position isn't at a point where, because you're going to pay for some of that, whether you're insured or not, it's just like, we got to, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm selling the property yeah. and leaving. The, the people that own the restaurant, Sweet Teas, uh, I kind of loosely know the owner, and I spoke with him maybe a couple weeks ago about the process. They had planned to be open like in last September, and they're nowhere near being ready to be open. And he says it's all about just going back and forth with the insurance company, and they have to cover these costs. You know, as the building goes on, they've got to keep going to get the restaurant going. Yeah. So they're paying and then hoping that they'll get their money back from the insurance company through the process. It's uh, it's amazing. I, I, I think he he said if he would have known that it was going to take this, that it was going to be this arduous, that he pro he probably right might reconsider and not even rebuild. You know, so, but they're in it now. 
Yeah, yeah. They're, they're they're in deep, so they gotta they gotta finish it. But you know, I'm looking forward to them getting through it because I I'll definitely uh, support them because they had a beautiful beautiful restaurant. Yeah, and uh, just uh, that whole center, <laughs> you know, you know the story. It's nothing nothing's there. Yep. Yeah, <clears throat> I read a thing in the paper that I thought they were, that they were close to reopening. They have a lot of uh, they have a lot of love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people really like people. their people like the food. Well, it's you know, it's food you can't get. It's similar to um, there's a um, a place that does New Orleans food that has an outlet in Santa Rosa and then one in Healdsburg. Oh, um, you're talking about uh, it's Parish Cafe. Parish. Where did they open in Santa Rosa? They're right down on on Third Street, Fourth Street, right next to uh, the Paella place. Oh, uh, Gerard's okay. Yeah, right. it's good. It's like yeah, I, I had shrimp and grits in there the other day, and I'm like, all right, this is good. This is like this is real. Yeah, we've been there a couple times, uh, several times to the place up in um, Hillsburg because it's a nice drive and yeah. it's kind of cool to go up there. So That's a yeah, good excuse to go have some beignets and you know all of that stuff. But anyway, you don't get a lot of that stuff, and when it's made well. Like sweet yeah. teas used to do that stuff. You get that, you know, you're going to have food that you can have very regional cuisine from the South that you don't get here. So I think people really like it. Yeah. The owner's kind of fortunate. Um, he runs, um, he runs an independent um, electrical contracting business. So he's through all of this, he's been able to supplement his income and keep it going. So that's, you know, good. Having- that's good for my stomach. <laughs> Having, having two fingers in the pot, so to speak, you know, so that's helped him out, you know, but uh, still, it doesn't doesn't mitigate the fact that it's an, a long, arduous uh, task to uh, bounce back from a devastating fire. And, you know, Definitely. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough going. Speaking of tough going, I can't help but bring up our man, uh, Vijay Malaya. So he's. He's looking good in this photo. Yeah. And uh, again, I mean, things are things have been kind of rough for him. Uh, he hasn't got some of the court rulings have not gone his way, but uh, he's he's still holding strong. And it's I think it's going up to the Supreme Court over there in London. So, yeah. Uh, well, they get- he, well, what's interesting is he um, I mean, this this guy's interesting on many, many levels. Um you know, as we talked about before, he's he's been called the uh, Richard Branson of India. <laughs> and what it was known, he was known as like Mr. Good Time or something. The King of Good Times. Yeah. Once known as the King of Good Times. That's a good moniker. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I, I wouldn't feel bad if somebody labeled me like that. But what I find interesting, this article really talks about how the uh, Indian government passed a law about being able to... to get more control of these people's assets and they defaulted what I um, <clears throat> and the article writes it in a way and I kind of um, agree with this you know they're attacking all these guys who defaulted yep. and very little is said about the bankers who made the loan yeah they're getting out of it kind of like here in the United States you know we, quite uh, frankly the US of A and uh, uh, hey you guys are too big to fail so we'll just uh, back yeah, you exactly. up here you know what I'm sorry you went bankrupt welcome to the business real business world yeah you know goodbye see you later you can start again that's what's great about here but I just don't um, I mean certainly the loans were made from banks that that are public banks I, not only the people that that got the money and didn't didn't it didn't work out the people that made the loan should be accountable too i don't uh, i don't think any differently about what happened in the states um yeah. you're taking public funds things go south you you need to work to make that money back that's you know that's just i don't know that's how i was raised um take a loan from somebody doesn't matter who it is you got to pay them back um, but not only starting at the point that you agreed to all of that. Um, well, he's his argument is that he's being targeted by the government, and that's uh, that certainly and they, appears to be true. 
Yeah, and there's there's bigger fish than him, yeah. way bigger fish. <laughs> Talk about and that. um, you know, hey, I didn't, you know, I'm keep all my stuff. I mean, basically, is what he's saying. Keep all that stuff, sell all. I don't care. Yeah. But you know, I don't think I owe you guys anything. I mean, he's he's who he wants a clean slate, which is why he left the country to begin with, right? Very true, and and uh, you know, it, it needs to be re-emphasized that he's like, hey. Take these assets and sell them. You'll make money yeah. on them. He's like, hey, which again goes back to like, hey, I agreed to do this. Um, you know, not, you know, the sitting president, our sitting president, you know, he's had his fair share of bank, bank. When he's been bankrupt more than once. Not even going there. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think there's certainly a, a portion of the political class that if they could write a law like this and put him in jail would do it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, this stuff happens everywhere, right? Yeah, it's it's a standard uh, white collar crime, man, and it's being uh, it's being um, played out in the courts. But uh, it, what's it called? A Fugitive Economic Offenders Act. Yeah. So you know, ultimately, what this will do is. What they're doing is they're tying all of these assets. They're they're really it's it's being tied to the internet now, so it's going to be much more difficult for people to do this, take off, take all their money with them. Um, the the government will, will have a, a clearer and better track of where the monies are, who has them, and they can stop these guys from absconding with like billions of dollars. I don't know what ninety billion rupees is, but. Or two hundred. Uh, I don't know what. I guess to say that there's one point one trillion rupees uh, that's been tied up in lawsuits right now with these different banks since 2017. Seems like a lot of money. I'm not sure what that is in billions, but yeah, these guys. Uh, you know, I mean, he 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 basically borrowed a whole bunch of money and he friggin' defaulted on his loans and then he left the country and they're trying to get him back. It's the same old story. But hopefully, with this new law that's co- that's come in, uh, that less of this will happen, and, and people have a little bit more security in the bank that they have that yeah. they're, they're doing bank with, yeah. with that they're doing business with. Excuse me. It's I, about twenty-eight billion dollars. Oh, jeez. Two billion well, rupees is about twenty-eight million. Wow. Current exchange rate. Yeah, and I I think that the the banks and I think the banks and and actually the the courts. Would be happy if they could get ten percent of that. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I mean, they're what are they? They said he's got ninety million in in uh, ninety million that they're trying to get um, in assets. Yeah. I mean, ninety billion. Supposed... He's got ninety yeah. billion in default, and he's got yeah, all so... these assets for trying to. I mean, the liquor. Does he still? I don't even know if they still own the liquor business, but if they do, that's got to be. That's definitely got to be worth it. I know recently he was seen at one of the because he used to be a owner in uh, one of the Formula One teams. He was recently seen there, you know, kind of hanging out with the Formula One uh, cognoscente. So I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I know he's not leaving where he's he's not leaving the London area. No, (laughs) find himself on a plane to India. (laughs) Good cause. He's keeping a low profile. He's not jet setting anymore. No. or riding his V8 motorcycle around. Oh man! So uh, that lifestyle thing is is pretty interesting. Did you get a chance to uh, read uh, Dave uh, McIntyre's uh, article about uh, the differences in uh, uh, what your choices of wine uh, say about the yeah. way you think? Yeah. What did you think of that article? I I, I did I disagreed with a lot of it, but yeah, I you know I think these articles are you know they are you know, what they're worth for the entertainment value. Okay. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I mean, I'm like, ah, eh, you know, I like red wine. Therefore I'm blah, blah, blah. You like white yeah. wine. Therefore you're blah, blah, blah. Or to put a point to it, I drive a Prius. Therefore I'm a little bit more adventuresome and I'm more, yeah. uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more, uh, more open to new ideas than, than you because you drive a Cadillac or whatever. Now, yeah. This is also useful in conversations with people who don't want to be labeled something that you can use to label them with. 
oh, I see you like that wine. You clearly are a fluid thinker. Or you're a fixed thinker. You're rigid. What? You could have a lot of fun. You're a fixed thinker, and uh, go ahead and enjoy your barrel fermented Chardonnay. That's right. I'm going to go ahead and have uh, a, a nice um... Bordeaux or uh, uh, a Pinot. Um, Un- unbelievable. Yeah. So uh, yeah, there's not much to that article that was filling paper, but I I thought it was it was it it's definitely uh, something you could bring up at a cocktail party and have a good it, talk it, with. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty. It's it it's very much you know very much worth that. And who knows? I mean, there could be some truth to this. Yeah. I mean, I think we're on the I think we're on the same page with that one. Yeah, I'm just like, bah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fun to read. I I really love the one that Courtney Schissel did about how to tell if a wine wage. I think that resonated with you also. Yeah, quite a bit. So that that was um, is this uh, yeah? So this is a Forbes article um about aging wine. I. You know, I talk to people all the time. They find out that I, you know, we do this and I have some knowledge about wine. And this is a question that comes up a lot um, in the context of people have a perception that wine just generally you age wine. And the more that it's aged, the better it's going to be. Isn't that true? Um, In some cases, that's true. But they're very small. It, they're very small. I mean, yeah. I mean, all joking aside, almost all wines. I, I mean, if you think about how much wine is made, almost all of it's designed to be consumed within the first couple of years, if not immediately. The after first couple of hours. Yeah. I mean, it's literally like ready to drink. And aging it, you, and aging it, you know, you often don't come up with you. It taste does not taste good. Um. One thing I did like about this article that was great is she's like, go t- go try it out. Go check this stuff out. Like, buy some bottles and put them down. Do some experimentation. Um, and it's really, um, in fact, just last week I had a conversation with somebody who's, who was arguing with, ar- literally arguing with me that Pinot, you age Pinot. And I'm everybody knows that, Bill. Yeah, I know. And I'm like, no, it's just like, you're supposed to drink it like right away. <laughs> right away um and i think you know even in this article she gives good tips about what to look for in a wine um but it's still really a crapshoot in my mind in my own brain about what will age and what won't age and whether or not it will um come out well if it's if it's put down for a while yeah, the, the way that I, um, you know, I've had a lot of experience with the aging of wines just because if, if you've been around the business for a while, you buy stuff and you, you have it and you forget about it or whatever. So you, you learn just just by happenstance. Um, a really good thing for people to do if you want to learn about how wine ages and you also want to, like, perfect your palate for figuring out what type of wines you like and what age you like is when you have a wine that you like, that you enjoy, buy a case of it. And then yes. stick that case in a nice, safe spot, preferably a cool, dark, you know, area with not a whole bunch of vibration and craziness. You want to find, you know, you want to store it properly. And taste the wine over the years. And just take notes. Taste it over the years. If you've got a case of wine, you could taste it over 10 years, 12 years. And just see where it gets to the point where you really enjoy it. Like I know for me, there's certain, you know, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, In general, for me, the sweet spot for wines that you would typically sell or say a French Bordeaux, um, a Chateauneuf de Pop. How about a Barolo? Well, Barolo would be, yeah, that would be a good one also. That's All these they, wines have, they have different, uh, you know, everyone enjoys them a certain way. Like, it's difficult for me, actually, to enjoy a Barolo, you know, from a recent vintage, say 2012 or 2013. I can taste them, and I can understand what, what is going on with them, but they're not really very enjoyable because they're so tannic at that point. So a Barolo for me, it hits stride, depending on the vintage, of course. This is all generalizations. It's usually like eight to ten years. 
and then that's my sweet spot for 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 most Barolo. And the people you know, that have, consume them, I uh, like yourself. I assume that that's that you'll hear that from from most people, and including the producer. The producer, I would assume, says, "Hey, put this wine down." Yeah, celery. And to, your, and to your point, it's hard. It's really hard to generalize that one wine, that wine in general. You just can't say wines will age. And then some wines, you know, all wines are meant to drink and, you know, you don't need to age them. You know, that's that's really not true either, because, I mean, you can have a white wine, say. Uh, you could have a suave, uh, a high end suave from a classical um, from a classic uh, producer. And this white wine could be really hitting its stride in eight years versus, you know, just, you know, most suave you want to drink within the first one or two years of when it's produced. But certain producers make them to where they'll age. Now, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's a it's a difficult and a, it's a touchy kind of thing because the wine is going to change over that time. Um, it's it's going to age and it's going to get different characters that develop in it. What makes wine age is acidity and tannin, and that's the reason a suave um, that's made a particular way can age a long time because it has you know, a high amount of acidity in it. It's the same thing with the Riesling. Some people like their Rieslings young, but you can age a Riesling if it's made by a good producer 20, 30 years. Yeah. And uh, pretty easily. Yeah. But you don't hear, in general, to your point, you don't hear people drinking Rieslings from, you know, the 1980s right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, fair. you know, to kind of, t- there's some really good things in this article, Some of what, one of which you just touched on. So, First, at the beginning of the article, I believe she mentioned this at the beginning. If the if the wine's under thirty or under, it's probably not designed to age. That's a good rule of thumb in my brain. I'm not saying it can't be, but it's you walk into a you know you walk into Total Wine and More or you walk into Bevmo and you get a twenty dollar bottle of wine. It's probably not going to age well. I'm not saying in all aspects, but it's a good rule of thumb that thing's probably designed to drink in the next couple of years yeah i agree and then the the point about tannins and acidity um are are super key because that that's really what is going to make that wine's structure change and you know the tannins and the acidity will interact and potentially create some new and interesting flavors along with the the rest of the wine plus you're going to get that um they'll mellow probably um and that that just you know you know it's just it's like you know something shiny and news it just gets some like you know um, a piece of clothing that's sort of designed to age as you use it and get softer or more supple um, uh, yeah I, I would agree with that to a certain extent I mean I mean basically it just really depends on the structure of the wine so I mean you could find a twenty dollar bottle of wine that has the structure ie um, the tannins and the acidity and it has the right balance that could age for 20 years. You know, whether you want to age it and it's going to improve to the point where you would enjoy and it would be worth aging it for that period of time. I mean, that's, that's up for debate. Um, Last night we opened up a bottle of uh, Menage a Trois (laughs) Merlot. Hey, it's, it's Christmas time, right? So people are always giving us bottles. So a neighbor gave us this bottle. I would never really probably buy something like this. It's a, but it's a respectable I Yeah, it was it's a it's really a decent wine, but yeah. to your point, when okay. I tasted it immediately I could tell this is a wine that is meant for consuming right now. Yeah. Li- literally. Yeah. It's not yeah. six months you don't want it. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's yeah. priced that way too. Yeah, it's it's not for, you know, it's it's like, you know, you buy it at Costco and you you know, you open it up when you get home. Yeah. yeah. It's it's that type of wine. And it's I mean, sure, you could you could let it hang around for uh, two or three years in in the house, but you know you're really not going to get any noticeable improvement in flavors. You probably get you're probably going to become disappointed at the end of those three years. I would imagine. One way that I could tell if a wine has the stuffing to last is if uh, I'll open up a bottle and uh, we'll drink part of it, and I'll just put the bottle in the fridge, yeah, leave it, and then come back maybe a week later. And taste that wine, and that is a real—that's a good rule. Eye of thumb. opener. 
that's a that's a real good rule of thumb because if it's structured right, it's still gonna taste okay after a week being open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, it will change. And if it changes, it's like, wow, this actually kind of tastes better. That's one of those yeah. experiments you do where you're like, oh, I left that wine open. Oh, I just taste it. Oh, wow, it doesn't taste so bad. It got yeah, better. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if you want to do it in the fast forward, just leave it on the counter. Yeah, you know, well, stick a cork in, leave it on the counter, and you know, wines that are meant to last, you know, they'll they'll still be kicking butt. Yep. You know, for a few days. Whereas ones that aren't, they they they, um, they drop, they fall off the cliff immediately. I remember a winemaker. I was at a winery, and I remember a winemaker doing that very thing, tasting his wine that he had left out all night, basically, and was very um, very pleased with himself that it was, you know, it was hanging. Yeah. He's like, ah, it's good. This is good. You this know, is gonna work. Master of the universe. I made it perform. Yeah, that's really a that's a really good article, and it's it's fun to um to do that. I do that a lot with the just buying uh you know a, a good quantity of wines and just trying them over time. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but it's a good way to learn. No, it's a super. It's yeah, and it's fun at the end of the day. Um, speaking of of um, you know, sort of aging wine and um, uh, you know, drinking the occupational hazard of wine consumption, a headache, and what gives you a headache. Um, the uh, article in Outside um, about why you should drink organic wine. Yeah, it's a lot of juicy tidbits in that one, Bill. I, you know, I never really thought about this until it was sort of put in front of your face about it soaking, you know, the basically the skins are being soaked in the juice. and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they could be leaching out all of the whatever was put into the soil. <laughs> or whatever's on the skins. Or whatever's on the skin. So they're they're, you know, saying that that could be a a cause of why we get headaches when we drink. We still don't know why. Um plus just the, you know, I think there's a general um I would say almost all the wineries, small wineries I've been to, um you know, you if you start talking to the wine or the winery production folks, the winemaker and, you know, the people in the cellars and the people that work in the, in the vineyards themselves, you will hear steward of the land, caring for the land. They're consciously thinking about trying to take care of what makes them a living. And so, you know, they're, you know, thinking about less chemicals in the soil, you know, more sort of pure, pure organic, meaning we're just going to let it, you know, we're going to take care of it as best we can, but basically let nature take its course. And, and I also think you get a more interesting product that way, but you know, you're dealing with people's palates. So, you know, net, net, this is a good thing to discuss. Um, and I'm glad people are kind of paying attention to it. Yeah. There was a couple things in the article, um, uh, early on, I remember it's been a while since I read it, but early on, um, it says that one, that they'll, uh, that the wines will taste that organic wines taste better. I don't agree with that. At uh, all. I, I, you know, so, <laughs> you know, we can get in the article goes into this. What the hell is an organic wine? Yeah. <laughs> you so, know, um, you know, if well, we're, we're, you know, if we're talking about our friends in the dry Creek Valley where Hugh's making the wine, <laughs> you know, that, you know what, that wine tastes better than pretty much all the wine I've had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that's that's organic wine in my brain. And it's it's a function of also the guy that's making it. The guy's like he's like a warlock of wine. But so. that's what I'm just saying though, you know, I mean that's you know, that's organic wine. I I walk into Costco and there's cases of quote unquote organic wine. I don't know what that is. What does yeah. that mean? What does that mean? It's a it's a it's a fuzzy it's a fuzzy area, that's you for know, sure. They used but organic the, the soap that, to wash the bottle. That's organic now. You know, yeah, they used organic soap to clean the bottles. So now they're saying the wine's organic. I mean, that's the kind of shenanigans you run into. Um, Well, that's why you have the, that's why you have all of the, uh, the codified uh, classifications with the different uh, organic uh, providers. That's part of it. But everyone has a different idea what it is. The the part about uh, you getting a headache in this, uh, you know, that, uh, I mean, they start out and they say, nobody knows what really causes wine headaches, but you know, Maybe, uh, maybe 
if you drink these organic wines, you'll be less likely to have headaches. I think the reason that people have headaches is is probably more related to the amount of wine that you consume that, than anything. You think? <laughs> you think? I'm just, I'm just, I'm using logic here. If you didn't drink the wine, yeah. you wouldn't have headaches, right? Yeah. So let's just take that a little bit further. Well, can we take, can we take <laughs> off the table that particular? Can we control for that particular part of the experiment? You know, it, we're we're all going to drink the same quantity of wine, and we're going to eliminate uh, eliminate the quantity until no one has a headache from drinking from overconsumption. But there probably is something to the, you know. I mean, are we getting? I mean, is residue that gets leached out from you know various chemical residues that gets leached out from 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 things that were, you know, the crop was treated with or during the process, either the growing process or the production process. Sure, probably. Some people get affected by that. Maybe. We don't know. And, you know, until we get consistency on what organic means, I think that's a very just specious argument to make. I mean, is anybody doing chemical analysis to see whether or not glycophate um, is in... Um, you know, round up in my wine. I don't think anybody's ever done that. Well, the fact of the matter is... And I don't want it regulated to the point that it is. Cannabis in California is regulated that way. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there is... Where there's smoke, there's fire. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and take that that uh, road. Yeah. You wouldn't have these the, the EU uh, clamping down on Bordeaux mixture. You know, Bordeaux mixture is... Um, it's copper sulfate and calcium oxide that dissolved in water. And that's what they spray on. Um, they spray the vineyards with to um, eliminate and to control powdery mildew. You know, mildew and grapes, not a good mix. And anything, um, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is used, especially like, say, the grapes are out, it rains. Well, the first thing the farmer does oh, is yeah. he fires up his tractor and goes out there and sprays his vineyard with this fungicide. Yep. Yep. So in Europe, they are tamping down on the amount of this mixture that you can use. Um, it's now being um, it's now being strictly regulated, and you can only use X amount over a certain number of years. And they're looking to the point where they want to actually eliminate this mixture. The problem is there's no other alternative except synthetic chemicals, other types of synthetic chemicals. There is no other alternative. Um, organic wine producers in Europe use this Bordeaux mixture and used it for years. But what they're finding is that the soils are becoming higher and higher with this copper residues, which is yep. they're, they're saying, hey, this is a problem. You know, this is not good to have these high levels of copper, copper. in our soil. So this, these things, um, you know, I mean, people are definitely looking at this. And I mean, they're very, very hard on, um, what's it called? Uh, um, gly, um, I want to say Glyphosate. Glyphosate. That's Roundup. I'll just that, say Roundup. Yeah. It's Roundup. Yeah, they're, they're really, really tough on Glyphosate. And I think, I don't know if it's even, I think it might be outlawed already in, in I Europe. I think in the EU, I think you're right. The, e, the yeah. EU has outlawed it. We just had our first case in the United States where somebody got exposed to a lot of quantity of this without the proper um, protection and won a, won a case. They got cancer. Yeah. Um, well, which is a landmark. That was a landmark case yeah it almost reminds me of the thing with uh with uh philip morris back yeah, in the day it you is know? there is some evidence that um the makers of roundup know that there are adverse effects of this chemical around humans um but yeah it does very much remind me of this but you know the the converse of this is less production so I'm, well, you that's know, the problem. Yeah, I that, get that mold, and the you know my crop yield is now cut by by sixty percent. Wine prices are going to go up. Well, let me ask you this: This is an issue in Europe because if the if uh, if a uh, organic wine producer 
isn't allowed to use this Bordeaux mixture and they don't have a suitable alternative yet, <laughs> they're going to lose their crop and they're going to go out of business. Yeah, so, I mean, who stands to gain from this? I always look at, you know, yeah, who's going to win? Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to win yeah. on this? Well, it's not going to be organic producers. No, it's the big producers. It's just going to be the big producers. It's just the big bulk production people that are going to win at this at the end of the day, because they're not going to stop doing that. And they're going to make, you know, I, I, I I'll get right back to Charles Shaw. You know, that that's a chemistry experiment. And I'm not trying to take a swipe at them and say it's bad or anything. They make a they make a product that tastes good in the glass that is an amalgamation of a bunch of chemicals and they do it as cheap as possible. Yep. Um I mean, you know, let's go to the ultimate the ultimate in my brain of this. Kraft Mac and Cheese. There's virtually I don't even think they're I, I that thing's full of chemicals. Is it really noodles and cheese? It's more like noodles and chemicals. Let's just look at the box. Hey, side, sidebar, sidebar. Did you see the article uh, just a couple of days ago where they had uh, Costco sells it? They're running out of it, so it was a big thing about it. About the 27-pound uh, jug of mac and cheese that they sell. No. <laughs> no, but there you that go. can't be good for you, man. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good. I don't want to be drinking wine like that. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not. I'm just going to stop drinking it or figure out how to make my own. I mean, really. I mean, really. You know, I mean, it's. But I mean, that's where that's what could happen. Yeah, it's the homogenization of of the wine world. But let's hope that doesn't happen. I think that, you know, as farmers, farmers are in. If, if they're anything, they're ingenious. You know, they own their land and they don't want to keep going. Yeah. They'll figure out a way to take care of their grapes and also do it in a fashion that is going to take care of the land. They just have to work at it now. Yeah. They've been leaning on uh, this technology that they've had since the 1900s, you know. So now it's time to come up with something new. And they will. For sure. For sure. Well, um, we probably should um how we look in time wise wrap up um a few more minutes you talk about you talk about the Cote de Rhone outstanding vintage and then uh maybe tell me what you've been drinking yeah the only thing about the Cote de Rhone the reason I shot that to you is um uh, the, the thing about um well they're saying outstanding vintage you know people that make wine or that produce wine Every vintage is an outstanding vintage, you know, to a certain point, you, you kind of get that. Yes. Um, <laughs> each vintage after the other is fantastic. It's the best one ever. <laughs> Please buy but In this case, they really have had a good run. This is talking about Cote de Rhone in particular. So they've had an, a, a, a really good run since 14. So 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018 have all been very good vintages. I've only tried the wines from the 2015 and the 2016. Um, the 2016s may be a little uh, – 20, 2015s are super ripe, super delicious, uh, great wines to drink now. There will be good wines to hold on. I'd say you could buy a base Cote de Rhone from 2015. You could probably hold that wine for three or four years, and it would still be That's drinking really well. Good. There's no need to, but yeah. you could. Yeah. Um, and the, the high-end wines like the Gigandas – um, the Chateauneuf de Pops, um, all of those wines, they're going to age well over a decade and, and then some. Um, 16, great vintage. 17, a very good vintage, but a small vintage. So there's going to be less wines. The price will be a little bit higher. And 2018 has been an outstanding vintage also, uh, according to this article anyway. Right. So it's been a good run in that part of Europe for uh, for wines. Yeah. And all joking aside about you know this outstanding vintage um, comment, it is really good to know if you're going to buy, you know, Cote de Rhone or wines from Europe, what you know what the vintage is like, because oftentimes you'll go in and find you know multiple years um, in a wine shop, and if you know one year is better than the other, that will help you buy. Um, help you purchase a wine. At least I found it very useful to know um, what people think about a vintage, um, especially um, in, in a region that I don't know. 
you know, as I know, like, you know, I know the weather around the United States and around here. So, you know, things that are made on the West Coast, I have a pretty good idea. Um, yep. So this is just, I mean, this just helps your, this helps you stretch your dollar, if you will, or get the most value out of your dollar for when you buy wine. Yeah, it's an agricultural product, so it's going to be, uh, you know, positively or adversely affected by weather conditions. Yeah. So it's important to, to keep that in mind. You know, people always say, oh, California, you know, everything is great. You know, there's never any problems with the frost. There's never any problems with the rain. Well, that may be true on those two points, but we got problems with fires now. Yeah. So now you have to watch um, California wines um, for wine t- or for smoke taint. Yeah. Um, most of the wineries, I would imagine most wineries are going to be pretty diligent about that because they don't want their they don't want their brand wrecked. You yeah, know. if they're reputable, that's true. What they'll you know. do is, uh, if you've got tainted wine, they'll send it to Purple Wine Company uh, down yeah. the road. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's, just, they're going to sell it to bulk. Osmosis, it, and uh, go to bulk. they'll sell it in a bulk brand yep. somewhere. Yep. And uh, that's that's how that works. Yep. Uh, and that's just cost recovery at that standpoint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you Absolutely. know, I'm yeah. just trying, not, to, yeah. trying to keep my <laughs> cash flow going. <laughs> Well, we don't make up in profit. We make up in positive cash flow. That's right, man. Um, you're on. You are in business, right? Yes, I am. The uh, well, uh, the wine I got to talk about today is. Uh, can you see that label? Yeah. Can you now, turn? Is, is it Chinetti? Uh, it's pronounced Chionetti. Chionetti. Yeah, the C, Chi- the C and H make a hard K sound. Gotcha. Uh, it's uh, Chionetti. Um, it's called uh, Bricolero uh, Doliani. I think it's Italian. Um, it's uh, this wine is made from Dolcetto. You familiar with Dolcetto? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dolcetto literally means uh, the little sweet one. Um, uh, Dolce is that I did not know. Obviously, a sweet in Italian, and Dolcetto is a diminutive, so it's a little sweet one. Um, it's a grape with uh, low acidity, uh, but it does have some pretty substantial tannins. Huh. This is a high-end producer, um, Chianetti. I can just look um, at the label. That yeah, would be yeah. my assumption. It's very so, uh, the label's very um, very clean and very basic design. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell um, I'll tell our, our listeners this <laughs> vintage you're not going to be able to find. It's already sold out. This is a 2016. Um, but the 2017 is coming out. It sells pretty rapidly. It is available in the United States, so just look for the 2017, and um, you're in for a, a good time. This wine is typically grown um, in the hills of uh, Pimonte, uh, where they grow uh, Nebbiolo, which is uh, the grape for Barolo and Baresco, uh, Barbaresco, excuse me. And it's grown in the hills where the Nebbiolo doesn't grow well. So wherever they plant uh, Nebbiolo and it doesn't ripen properly, it doesn't go well, they put, they, they put in some Dolcetto or they'll put in some Barbera. Huh. These days, more Barbera than oh, Dolcetto. Um, so cash flow. This is yeah. a wine that... Uh, Barbera's it, very accessible yeah, usually wine. It's, out, pretty, it's yep. out within a couple of years. It's pretty quick. Whereas the Barolo, you're not going to see for four or five years after the vintage. Um, the... Um, Pierre uh, uh, Galay, he's an amphilographer. Um, he he believes that Dolcetto is the same grape as uh, Duché Noir from Savoie in uh, France. Oh, interesting. And he also thinks it's the same grape as Charbonneau, which you're familiar with Charbonneau. There's some Charbonneau yeah, that's yeah. grown here. Yeah. And there's some really famous Charbonneau in um, Napa, huh. up in Calistoga area. Interesting. Now... There's a thread of truth in that, I think, because when you look at the finished wines, this wine is, has a deep, like a real bright purple hue to it. And Charbonne was like that also. Oh, interesting. So, anyway. Very cool. Um, as, uh, let's see, uh, this, like I said, it's grown all throughout uh, um, Piedmont or Piemonte. And Piedmont is um, the region that's the furthest, uh, it's the northwest region of Italy. So it's the hat, the very top, mm-hmm. right next to France. Um, there's seven c- communes or regions for um, 
for for um, Dolcetto, and they are uh, Dolcetto da qui, Dolcetto d'alba, Dolcetto d'asti, Dolcetto di Diano d'alba, Dolcetto di Doliani, uh, Dolcetto delle Langhe Monte Regalasi, and Dolcetto Dovada. I couldn't say those fast three times in a row. There's no way. Um, but uh, so basically, wherever there's a hill that won't grow Nebbiola properly, um, you're going to find uh, Barbera or you're going to find Dolcetto. Uh, some good producers for this wine, if you're looking for Dolcetto and you can't wait for this one to come out, uh, Catino, uh, Cantina de Pino has some out that I've seen. Um, you can always find some bottles of Dolcetto from uh, Aldo Conterno. And interesting enough, all of these producers that I'm mentioning, they make excellent Barolo. So yeah. if they make good Barolo, there's a really good chance they're going to make a pretty fine Dolcetto also. Uh, Vietti makes a good um, uh, Dolcetto. Uh, Fratelli uh, Pecanino makes a really good one. And also uh, Renato Ratti. On to the wine. The wine is, uh, the owner is uh, Quinto, um, uh, Quinto uh, Chianetti, and he's the son of uh, the founder, uh, which was uh, Giuseppe. Giuseppe bought the, bought the land uh, back in 1912. They produced three single uh, vineyard wines. This is one, one that's called Bricolero. It's interesting, interesting to note on this bottle, you don't see any note anywhere of Dolcetto on the front label or the back label. It's because the owner is more famous than the wine almost. So it's called Bricolero, which is a single That's, single vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. So they make uh, three single vineyards, San Luigi, La Costa, and uh, Bricolero, which is what, what I had. Yeah. Um, the vineyard sits on a hill above their little, uh, their home. And at the very top of the hill, there's this big tall pine tree. So you can, it's easy to recognize. Um, the sand, uh, the, the soil around it, it looks like it looks almost like um, it looks white, actually. It's wow. really lightly covered. So it's uh, calcareous. Um, so it's uh, almost looks like just lime, limestone, but it's not uh, it's certified organic. It's 100 uh, percent organic. Um, it's 100 percent dolcetto. Uh, the vines are tra trained by Guillo. I won't go into that. They're low to the ground. Spontaneous fermentation, which means that they just let the wines start the fermentation on the yeast and the natural yeast that are in the vineyard. So there's no cultured yeast that are used. Um, it's no filtering. So if you get some of this and you let it hang around, it's going to throw a little sediment. Don't let that throw you. That just means it's uh, really it's, good. Yeah. Uh, hand harvested. Uh, taste less production. Wise. Less production, less process is good. So yeah, those, yeah. that sediment's it's not a bad thing. Really simply. It's just crushed. It's fermented. Um, it's aged in uh, cement tanks for about a year. A uh, small portion of it, I think 10 to 15%, is aged in large, very large oak barrels. Um, the color, like I mentioned before, it's bright, bright purple. <laughs> it's really yeah, pretty. Um, has aromas of uh, violets and black fruit. Um, on the palate, you get... Um, Blackberries, plums, and uh, mulberry. I don't know if you're familiar with that mulberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Get that. Yep. Uh, it's medium-bodied. The fruit is it's really intense, but it's also super silky smooth. So, I mean, it's just like Sounds you taste good. it. I had a friend. It's like you taste it and you go, hmm, tastes like more. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's really, really good. So I highly recommend that. Look for the 2017. You can find some older vintages out there on the Internet. I kind of looked around this morning. Um, but I think uh, Dolcetto's best when it's fresh. So, you know, look for a fresh vintage. Go get some. Get some of that 2017. Yeah, wait for that. What do you got? You know, I, I have uh, no wine report. I still have to do the taste test between the uh, Russian River Pinot and, and Joe Wagner's Willamette Valley Pinot. Um, Looking forward to that. I will try to get that done this week. Um, I have had a... Um, I have had a Pilsner worth talking about, mm -hmm. um, seismic brewing here in, in Santa Rosa, their alluvium Pilsner. And, and in fact, all of their beers are, are pretty awesome. Um, 
and so I've been enjoying that. I'll put a link there if you can get any of their beers. They're great. Um, I think they do um, things like single. Um, they do brews or IPAs with like single um, hop hops. So they'll use like Simcoe hop. That's all they'll use, and that specific type of IPA increases the bitterness and um, will have some very unique flavor profiles to it because of that single hop. Um, and in general, their IPAs are, are, are pretty amazing. I'm seeing a lot. Um, if you talk to winemakers and you, and this is anecdotal, but this is my experience. If you talk to them and you talk to, um, brewers, it's often loggers and pilsners that they go to that is their regular drink. That is what they make. If they're working, that is what they're having. So that's why I'm interested in these things, especially these, um, you know, craft brewers making these things because that's effectively their beer. That's what they drink. And I'm, that's why I'm interested in all of these things. This Pilsner tastes a lot like a beer that I had when I was younger called Augsburger, um, mm -hmm. which was a successful competitor against old style um, back in the you know late 70s and, and 80s in Chicago. Um, so it had some regional affinity to it and success and I, maybe even national success back in the day. Um, you know, you might be able to find an odd six pack somewhere outside of the Chicago or, you know, upper Midwest area. But when I had this alluvium Pilsner, it immediately brought me back there in terms of its crispness, um, its clarity, and it's just overall, um, you know, taste on the palate, very light taste, almost champagne-like taste as it's going down. The other thing I tell you about that beer, the colder that you can get it, the better it's going to taste. Mm -hmm. um, it's designed that way. Um, there's a couple of, there's a, a bar in town that actually has it on tap and it's, it's, wow, it's delicious. It, it's like one of those things you just, you're drinking it and you're like, wow, my glass is empty. Yeah. And, and last but not least, these things are all low, low, tend to be lower alcohol than a lot of the IPAs that are being brewed. You know, I would say on average, you're looking at 7% or higher for most of the beers in this area. If you go to a brew pub, True. um, that's pretty high in my, I mean, that's just, you know, you're having one of those if you're out driving. You're good. Um, yep. You're um, good. You know, and the, the and not that you want to have lower alcohol so you can have mass quantities. It's just you can enjoy a little bit more. But this Pilsner is 5% um, or 5.2. Um, and you don't notice the alcohol. Um, man, a hot day after working outside, coming into one of those beers, it's going to be pretty awesome. Um, and it pairs well with just a ton of food. Um, yeah, it doesn't, ask you that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't get in the way of food. So pretty much whatever you're eating, I think we had Indian food the other night and it was delicious with the Indian food. Um, mm. oh boy. it's characteristic with the, especially cause it was hot the food was spicy. And so this was a nice, you know, uh, counterbalance to that, uh, that hot spicy food and it, my mouth is watering Bill. Yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, sounds, I, I like it. It's good. good right? Yeah. I can't wait till their tap room opens. Looks like they're going they're going hardcore now. I'm it's keeping been, an eye on it. Yeah, I was down I was down there yesterday. We were at the Crooked Goat yesterday. Um checking the place out. Give a shout out to the new we have a new bar in the Barlow. So if you come up here, please check out the Fern Bar. A new cocktail cocktail place. They have beer and wine there as well. Um cocktails are pretty interesting. I had a very interesting mezcal tequila um cocktail made with uh, blood orange syrup that they made and a dehydrated blood orange floated on like this they whipped it up so it was the orange was like literally floating on the foam beautiful oh, cocktail wow. and the space is amazing good food Gotta too go there. yeah check go check it out. it out good food too it's not cheap but it's I walked in and I'm like where am I this is not <laughs> Sebastopol <laughs> it's we'll see if they make it but it's good it's nice to have yeah, hopefully the community embraces them. So that'd be good. It's going to be tourism. It yeah. looked like there were like five or six groups of people who were in the area for, and the reason I say that is the way they were dressed. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. I had on flannel and like, you know, a pair of jeans. These people were in slacks and dresses and. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. 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 Clearly not. Clearly out of towners. <laughs> not from around here, huh? <laughs> but no, it's good. The place was busy and it was nice. It'd be a very nice place to, um, if you're going to go out to dinner in town and want to have a drink before, excellent place to go. They have live music too. 
Very nice. Very nice. So that's a local. That's a local report. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, you're gonna get some local from us, man. We can't help it. Yeah, it's good. We got good places to eat, yeah, and good places to drink around here, so we gotta cheer it. It's crazy, crazy lucky. But uh, that's it. So until next time. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>